Welcome to the Out of the Woods Podcast. The top five headlines threat hunters need to be thinking of this week. Hey everyone, and welcome to our weekly edition of the Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast. This is Scott Poley here with Lee Arkinall. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. And this weekly segment features the top five stories that threat hunters need to be thinking about, as well as our thoughts on the subject and hunting strategies. So with that, let's dive into the top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 5th, 2024. Well, Lee, I was going to start with... Um, one that I thought was pretty interesting. Um, I know it was a, around a CVE that came out a little bit ago, but it's uh, from Palo Alto Networks, the Unit 42 group. They do some really good stuff. And it's titled Exploring the Latest Miss Padu Stealer Variants. I'm not really sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly. But basically, uh, they basically found that the adversaries were using the CVE 2023-36025, which dealt with kind of bypassing smart screen. I want to talk about smart screen here for a second before I get into the details of the attack. But smart screen is a Windows uh, kind of protective feature uh, that when you were, say, browse to different websites, it tries to analyze um, specific things within the page uh, for characteristics of like suspicious uh, type of code and behavior as well as looks at reputation-based things. So if it's like a known bad site or known phishing site that's uh, been communicated around, it gets updated to where it will check against that. So it's, I would say, um, a good control to have. Um, I wouldn't rely solely on that for that type of protection, but it's 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 built into the system. Why not use it? You should be, you know, have it turned on and, and deal with it that way. But um, the CVE specifically pertains to what happens when you open a file that's a URL file? It seems that when you open a file, it doesn't go through the same smart screen checks um, that typically would happen. So for instance, in the URL file, uh, they'll basically have the basic um, address of what, you know, where to go for specific things. And it might even be for the icon of the file and then also the file itself. But what's what's also interesting is you can look for, you know, maybe the creation of uh, these URL files and try to look for it that way. But when there are fetches for files this way, uh, they are uh, prepended like, you know, you see HTTP or HTTPS colon forward slash forward slash. This is just file because it's like a file transfer. So if you have um, proxy logs or any kind of web traffic logs, you should be able to identify this type of behavior, especially when something is going external, right? Um, you might have file shares and things, and maybe you might see this kind of activity internally, uh, but going external to your environment, it's good to look at those anyways, but we can tie it back to this URL file, which uh, is a clear indication that there's something going wrong there. Um, so what they basically did was they pulled down, uh, this file and it would execute and smart screen wouldn't step in to try to, uh, block any of it. Um, and you know, it's just a good example of where someone took advantage of a very, um, simple method to pull down payloads remotely that, uh, bypassed a lot of the controls that would, you know, eventually set off and block them, um, in the long term. So it's a pretty good um, list. They have some interesting um, underlying strings that they they pulled out, which I thought were interesting um, within the URLs and they uh, that were commonly used. And I always find that interesting as well. They hash the strings, which is an interesting approach because I don't know what tools to specifically uh, be used for that. Uh, but uh, it's always good to see other kind of pieces of data that you might be able to think about or use or find effective ways to implement. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Uh, what were your thoughts primarily? So uh, I found this very interesting. Um, first of all, another accessibility, well, not, I guess I shouldn't say accessibility feature, but another feature that's been designed to help protect um, being abused, right? Um, we see this a lot with like, the UAC bypass techniques that are used. 
Um, it's just, uh, once again, a very creative way of looking at what an operating system does, how the features operate, and testing different ways that you can try to get past them. And once you find that, um, you know, it's hopefully going to be patched quickly. Um, but at the same time, how how fast can you get that uh, or how fast can you abuse that from an adversary's perspective before it gets, uh, you know, before it's brought up? Um, I think you mentioned a couple ways uh, to hunt for this. Um, like I was looking for um, URLs that didn't contain HTTP or HTTPS. Uh, using regular expression to identify URLs that contain IPs uh, instead of domain names. Mm -hmm. um, now, granted, if they do shift, um, well, I guess I guess they couldn't. If it, no, well, I guess that's a good question. Yeah. If you if you use HTTP instead of file, or if you're using file instead of HTTP, could you put a domain name there? Would it resolve? I, I believe you can still do the file to call out, they just have to, file uses, I think, the SMB protocol. So you just have to have that available to fetch a file. So okay. if you have a domain with that available, um, then I'm pretty sure it works fine as well. I'll double check that while, we, while you talk. <laughs> yeah. I'll say it's well, crazy. Or uh, our listeners, if you ever do want to fact check us, please feel free to leave in the comments. Um, we are, I, I like to think we're knowledgeable, <laughs> at least fully. Um, but there's always room for uh, more education, as long as you're a uh, constantly learning. You know that, that's kind of like what we do. Um, but for another another technique would be that because it was a stealer and it had some strings that were listed in there, um, directories that uh, may contain things that they're after uh, or register keys that contains information they're after. You could uh, make sure that you audit these. Now this would uh, this would be kind of a a bigger task, and I guess not a so specific um, hunt for this specific stealer. But I was thinking about this, and I, I felt like um, maybe even like digging down that or going down this path. But looking at all these stealers and information or intel reports that mention stealers, you know, what are the locations that they're always targeting now? Um, whenever it comes to auditing, you know, it could be, act, you could audit for access. Now, if you have uh, specific tools, um, like third-party tools that can do that, that and be more granular, that'd be great. Um, but you can also even do this with native Windows logging. Um, now, we all, I always bring up oh, event code 4656 uh, and 4663, which are very noisy. Um, but um, you can enable those logging or the those event logs to be audited but you can also select the places that um you want them to audit so you don't have to be uh you don't have to do global auditing like that to blow up your sim uh and you know really bump up the bill but if you find these locations and you say you know what we're just going to audit these for the time being if you see something requesting access to these locations um and then you look at the or the the, the the process name, it doesn't line up with anything or it's registry keys that are trying to be, um, they're being queried for or accessed by different um, executables, then that might be a sign of, um, you know, an incident. Uh, now, granted, that's not a perfect way. There definitely is a lot more tuning that needs to be involved and uh, uh, definitely when applying this to unique uh, environments and stuff, you got to think about everything that's going on. But that might be a nice, like, unstructured hunt uh, moving forward. Um, also, I thought the defense evasion technique, uh, may, well, maybe, uh, or would it be, it's not a sandbox either. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go with defense evasion. Uh, but I mean, the, the system check that it does to see if it's going to run or not. Uh, so, like, once it landed on, on the machine, uh, they mentioned that it would check the time zone, the local time zone, and compare it to UTC. And this was all done in minutes, uh, so that if it, it would subtract 300. So, if the difference was greater than 180 minutes, 
uh, if that difference was greater than 180 minutes, then it would exit immediately. And even in the report, they mentioned that this um, this left room or this targeted the countries uh, or most con- or some countries in the Americas and Western Europe. And I just I just thought that was an interesting way to contain and control, uh, I guess, this malware from executing on uh, or executing in countries that you don't want them to execute in, uh, which automatically, if Western Europe and the Americas are being targeted, uh, you automatically think of Eastern Europe and Asia and what countries come, you know, come to mind there are normally the big names. Um, well, you know, but I'm not the attribution expert. Uh, I never will, um, I'll never claim to be, but they did report on that. Um, and it's, it's just interesting to see um, that technique being used, I guess. So uh, to update on the question we were trying to kind of answer for ourselves. So when you use the file colon forward slash forward slash, it depends on what system you're on that's calling it for what protocol is likely used. Because um, they said typically you do that, it's lo- it's actually accessing local files. But if you were to, you know, say, launch the web browser in a way or fetch things based on the .url file, with a Windows um, machine, it would be an SMB connection likely. If it was Linux, it'd be NFS. And then if it was Apple, it could end up being FTP or SFTP. So... If that's if that uh, the, the, what I quickly looked for is actually true, that means when you're looking at network data, you have to pay attention to more than one protocol as well. Potentially try to identify this if you're looking at it from that perspective. Um, so, yeah, I guess be be aware of that, and then you can come out and validate that yourself if that's the case. Well, that's good. <laughs> that was a quick uh, research done. Well done. Um, also, <laughs> sorry, one thing I forgot to mention was uh, inse- uh, insecure protocols. The fact that it was running over HTTP or call in port 80, uh, you know, if that's not normal in your environment, um, if your proxy uh, makes it, you know, makes you use secure protocols, that could stick out. Now, granted, that's probably not the case in all organizations, but that's a, a place to start. Yeah, and you bring that up, and I think it's always good to pair that with the direct IP call out. Anytime you have direct IP connection with a, a non-secure protocol that doesn't, you know, because that mean, it requires you to set up certain things and additional things to make that work. But when you use stuff that's not secured and not encrypted, those types of channels, and you're doing direct IP call outs, those are worth looking into because that's like the quick and dirty way to just move files, which a lot of adversaries do um, just because of that. So um, it's a good, good call out. Absolutely. Like if you're in a corporate environment that's been designed securely and you've brought security engineers and stuff like that on board, why would you do that? Unless it's internal, I guess. It's an internal IP. Either way. Cool. So what do you got for yours? So bringing up the uh, DFER report from uh, January 29th. Um, I'm going to caveat this with or preface this with um, always impressed with the reporting and the details. This attack, though, seemed to be like the worst case scenario that we talk about. Like we always say, like, you know, we're talking about the attacks, you know, dwell time is 20 to 30 days, uh, depending on when Intel report you read. Um, you know, normally the adversary takes multiple days to come back because, you know, if they get in your environment and then they do uh, internal reconnaissance and then they have to come back, um, you know, there's always that time lapse between because they're trying to figure everything out. This one had ransomware executed across their entire network in less than three hours. Um, it just... I feel for these people. Uh, I feel for the victims because uh, that that kind of that alone kind of paints the picture of what type of organization it was. Um, mm-hmm. And no, I'm not trying to throw blame at anyone here. Um, I, I certainly believe that everyone out there is not neglecting on purpose. Um, small, medium businesses to corporate organizations, uh, you name it. 
Uh, but at the same time, I can see why it's hard to be cybersecurity focused when you're trying to keep the lights on. Um, with that being said, I, I don't mean to blame anyone here. It just seems like the worst case scenario where uh, the adversary gained access through or initial access through an externally exposed RDP. Um, they used default administrator, uh, this uh, legitimate credentials for the default administrator account with no signs of brute forcing. Um, and once they got on, they used some tools that um, aided their advancement. So they had uh, batch scripts, they had executables, and also they dropped the soft perfect NetScan tool. Now, I haven't heard of this one, so I had to do some like research to figure out you know, how close to Nmap is it. Because uh, Nmap's kind of like my go-to, um, and it's first of all, it's very, it looks very user-friendly. Um, it has a GUI, which is always nice um, to make things easier when you're saving files or trying to figure things out. Um, it can perform ping sweeps of a network and display live devices. Um, it can also detect MAC addresses uh, on devices, even on the routers. But there are so, like when I went to the site for softperfect.com or softperfect uh, net, net scan, it was just a bunch of useful capabilities, which you can see why they dropped it uh, where they were because it's a heck of a, it looks like it's a heck of a tool. Um, one other capability that it had was that it supported a remote SSH and PowerShell and VBS script uh, or VB script command execution. Um, which you could, uh, you can understand just having that capability built in a tool could reduce the amount of time that the adversary needs to spend laterally moving, um, or worrying about how are they going to get these files elsewhere. Um, but kind of a scary, you know, kind of a nice tool to add to the list of tools of, uh, adversaries abusing. Um, also after that, they laterally moved uh, with RDP to one of the file servers that they discovered. And then they dropped the toolkit again, uh, ran some commands that were intended to disable Windows Defender. So now they were um, trying to make the machines more vulnerable so that they could get away with uh, their, uh, their attack. And then they ran a bash script, which led to our clone exfiltrating some information to mega.io, which has been used uh, and mentioned before in uh, some defer articles. Oh, which is just cloud storage. Uh, and then they left the network and came back with another IP. Now, I, I know I said less than three hours. They weren't gone for very long, but they just came back with another IP. Um, and then they landed on the machine as, or on another uh, machine and started um, disabling Windows Defender again. From there, they deployed the Trigona ransomware. And the attack lasted about four, two hours and 49 minutes. Um, now, the, that's unfortunate because it was such a smash and grab. Um, and hopefully this isn't the norm. Hopefully this is just one of the outliers that exist there. Um, but some hunting ideas, if in case you are worried or you're one of those organizations that uh, is worried about what's going on or how to even like hunt for this activity, um, or I guess just activity in general for these techniques, uh, so you can look at the logs. Um, some of the batch files were staged in the admin, or sorry, look for the file create logs. Um, some of the batch files were staged in the administrator's music folder. Um, and I know you've mentioned before, Polly, that um, if you look at the directory, look at what it's intended to do, um, you may be able to find some uh, anomalies in like the musics or videos folder. So why was there a batch file that was in there? Why was there an executable that didn't match up with any video or um, music player? You know, take a look at directories like that, that or that normal users aren't interacting with on a daily basis. Um, they also created a new user, um, which if you can look for or hunt for users being added to local groups or to the machine or whatever the case may be. Always check to see, does the naming convention match? 
was this expected? Um, does, does this line up with something that uh, like a change within your organization that be that can be confirmed? Now, granted, this was under three hours on Christmas Eve, so I'm sure people weren't really watching the files. But looking for things like that might um, might help your organization. Uh, and then, of course, they use the uh, auto run registry keys um, to gain persistence and possibly privilege escalation. Um, so if they did drop, um, you know, their tools there, then they could uh, maintain persistence and also possibly privilege escalate or not privilege escalate again, but maintain that elevated privilege, um, which we actually have a community hunt package for, um, which is always nice because it looks at all the auto run locations that are commonly abused, such as the startup directory or the list of um, Windows run registry key. Now, the I think the most interesting thing that I saw that happened was that they modified uh, a registry key that um that they added to um or sorry they added the username that they created to the registry key. So uh remember, sorry, I said one of the interesting things the creation of the registry key value support under the registry key, which will hide the account support uh, or the account support account from the login screen. So and they, they, the script created a user named support with a password. So not only did they create this user, but then to possibly maintain more persistence or to evade any detections, they modified the registry key that would show the usernames that are on the login page. Which we have a humpback for as well, because I remember creating that a long time ago. Oh, perfect. Nice plug. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because you know it's a, it's something we created a long time ago, and people still go back to those old tricks. Absolutely, and not only does that, um, I, I like the fact that it talks about um, or that it reflects our ideas that these techniques are used um, multiple times, and they last, they last, and are reused and reused and abused and abused. So. Hopefully, our hunt packages that we create will stand the test of time as well. Uh, and I think that's the the joy and the pride we take in focusing on behaviors uh, versus atomic indicators that may go away within the hour or week or you name it. Uh, but that's enough about me uh, or about what I have to say. Uh, what did what were your takeaways, Foley? Um, there's a couple. Uh, one, the one thing I did not like about the report was they did mention the run, registry run key, but unless you're like paying close attention to the minor techniques at the bottom or the persistence section where they have the one sentence that mentions it, you might miss that part. Um, and I think, you know, maybe people see it so often that they're kind of like, oh yeah, it does this, you know, by the way. But I think that's like a really critical piece because those are the easiest things to look for forensically. Also, if you are monitoring, looking for those changes, they just stick out. Um, so there was there was that, uh, but that's not necessarily a huge dig. It's just kind of interesting because normally I feel like there's more attention to at least what the key was named and things like that. Um, the other that I I liked um, and also want to bring attention to is when they landed, you know, they want to drop some coin miners, uh, I believe, on the web server there or the server they're hitting, and their first action was to look for um, similar naming conventions um, and also ports that corn miners are already running on or would run on um, and basically stopping those processes and then, you know, watching theirs kind of thing. And that's always interesting because I feel like adversaries, like people don't realize that sometimes adversaries, when there's like a prime resource that's, that's exposed externally, you know, it's up for grabs. And so there's been historical moments where adversaries have gotten in and they patch the system so that they're not getting kicked out by another adversary who finds it and wants to own it for similar reasons, right? So there's kind of not really this uh, code of conduct, so to speak, 
there's a system is vulnerable. Anyone that wants to, you know, grab it and persist on it is kind of like it's a wild west a little bit. Um, so that was interesting, just to see how adversaries behave. You know, if it's something they plan on gaining money, miners is a great example. They don't want someone else's miner on the machine that they want to mine, so they'll kick other people off that may have been on there. So that was something yeah, they why, did. Why use your power processing power and electricity when you can use someone else's? Yeah, and why would you want to share those resources with someone else? Um, that's trying to do the same thing, right? You want it all for yourself. Um, so that was just kind of interesting. Like, you know, I always like to get in the mind of the adversary. And then also, you know, a very common thing is like when you see Java executing, you know, command prompt or leading to PowerShell or other like script-based languages, it's never a good sign. Um, I don't think professionally I've seen it legitimately, not saying it wouldn't exist, um, but you know, those are, you know, big things to stand out, especially if you're looking at web servers that, you know, typically might be running Java to kind of, you know, host content or run the, kind of the page dynamics. Um, it's good to look for those on web servers specifically. Uh, but then, you know, the, the standard, when you see, um, you know, command prompt, CMD, XE slash C starting PowerShell, it's also never a good sign. And I don't see that that often either. So sometimes I really like those behaviors that just stand out. Um, and it's like, you can kind of cast that really super wide net. Anytime I see CMD, uh, four slash C, yes, people can do that legitimately, but there might be very few applications, um, that do use that. And if they do, they're really using a whitelist. And it's just a good thing to hunt for things like that, because that's the most common simplistic behavior you see from a lot of adversaries when they want to run things. Um, so it's always good to kind of keep those in mind, just as like uh, maybe an ancillary report that you just check from time to time. You just kind of generate it based on that context. Um, so that that stood out as well. Um, and then you know the common creating of services. You know that's something we we you've talked about a lot before. Uh, but anytime you see services uh, being created on a machine that you that you don't see created in multiple places across your environment. I think that's always a good indication when you compare and contrast, because usually if you're running something and it's a service, you're going to see it on more than one machine, um, unless it's a special purpose built server or something like that. So you can kind of do rarity there. You can say, what are all the services that have been created? And are there any that are like less than, you know, so many machines um, worth looking at, right? Um, it's a good way to kind of tackle some of those things. Um, but yeah. Those are some of the highlights that I was kind of pulling out that uh, stood out to me a lot. That's always a, another great article. Yeah. So where are we going next? So this next one is is interesting to me, and I, I kind of want to bring it up based on the topic because of how I've felt about botnets in the past and kind of, I guess, how I feel about them now. But it's like uh, them. it's What's that? You like them, right? Well, I used to not really care too much, but now I see why they can become more of a problem as time persists. And there's a couple of reasons why. Um, and I'll get into that. So help net security. Um, and I had an article published, DDoS attack power skyrockets to 1.6 terabits per second. And first off, um, you know, I don't expect everyone to know this because I only know this from experience, but you know, they were talking about the maximum attack power rose from 800 gigabits per second. The, uh, I guess 1H of 2023. I don't know what the H is. What's that? The first half? First half? I guess. And that is not actually true um, because the Mirai botnet, I don't know if you remember that, but in 2016... I mean, Mirai Botnet, you know, is back 2016, and it might have been a little before that, but, you know, their first big uh, disruption was exceeded one one terabit per second. So it was greater than 800 gigabits per second, they said, it happened towards the beginning of 2023. So obviously not all the data is there, but um, but why I think this is kind of important is, you know, I can see denial of service attacks, you know, being on the rise in general. Um, especially with where kind of world turmoil is, you know, if you're not encrypting systems to disrupt services, denial of service things are going to happen. And we kind of run into this really complex, uh, relationship with technology and network speeds, right? Where everyone is figuring out how to make things communicate faster. 
um, creating bigger pipes uh, at points of the network, right? But when it comes down to uh, who's receiving the services, that pipe's usually the smallest. So you basically enable a bigger pipe to be flooded with more things that a smaller pipe obviously won't be able to handle. So I feel like there's more susceptibility there, but also with things like Internet of Things. That's why the Mirai botnet was such a great example of this um, because their big thing was compromising Internet of Things that had poor security because no one really thought like, you know, who's going to compromise a random thermostat or how could a thermostat be used maliciously, right? But the thing is, is there's so many of these things. They don't need to talk a lot if they all talk at the same time, especially the same target. And why I say my my attitude towards botnets have, has changed is my first stint in security. You know, I worked for a university where I saw botnets all the time um, because you had students not necessarily uh, browsing the internet safely or you know downloading things that weren't safe. And so they were getting affected by botnets, and a lot of my response was trying to help them or try to remove those systems from the network so that, you know, the botnet kind of gets removed from their system. And it was kind of like the whack-a-mole game, and it wasn't very rewarding because at the end of the day, it was like, I mean, it's not really affecting us. But I think it's something that security professionals can't ignore because the... um the grand effect it has in general to uh, services elsewhere. Because if you think about a denial service as well from the perspective of well, you're overflowing a pipe. Sometimes there's unintended targets associated there too, right? So you can say, well, what do I care? I mean, maybe we'll participate and we'll send a couple of packets and stuff from our network, um, but and it only impacts the, the, that one target, which could be bad. But now you have cloud resources. You have all these other resources that share a broad spectrum that if, if that is able to, one, get saturated and be the target, that's bad for multiple people. But two... If you're if a lot of traffic's running through a single ISP that can't support it, now you're affecting a lot of people, and so it's really good to, as a security professional, kind of stay on top of this and be aware of this. Uh, one, it can prevent you from being blacklisted if your IP address gets blacklisted because you're participating in a prominent botnet causing a lot of problems. That's not good for your business. Uh, but there's really good IDS alerts out there for a lot of these botnets. Um, and there's good good repos to pull things down. Um, I know Snort's free repo probably has a lot of them in there. Uh, so if you run an IDS or an IPS, um, it's it's good to sit there and, and at least pay attention to them. It's not like you know that's where you dump all your resources, but I think they're more important than they have been in the past. They've been kind of more of a nuisance. And this article kind of brings that to light when they talk about the increase where U.S. is leading by 24% in the rise of denial of service attacks. And then it goes to Netherlands at 17, Thailand, Colombia, Russia. And the bottom one is Brazil by 2%. So you, know, you can see where things are at least rising by a couple percentage um, points. And obviously Europe and the U.S. are, are at the top of that. So um, yeah, I just want to bring light to it. I read the article. I, I, I like some things that are mentioned as far as just, you know, the visibility of what they're seeing for throughput. I kind of wish they did more homework and focused on more historical things that have hit those numbers. But like I said, those numbers are going to continue to grow. And, and 1.6 uh, terabits per second is uh, quite a bit of traffic. So, All right, we're going to play some Nostradamus here. When do you think it's going to reach a petabyte? Oh, a petabyte will be some time. Because you got to get through a lot of terabytes um, or, or terabits. Terabits. Uh, yeah, but the the big question is, is I know some countries um, are now having really fast fiber runs straight to residential, right? And there's some areas in the United States that have that, but there's you know some countries out there that also have that availability. And you think about, okay, those locations, if they're hosting a number of bots, um, then that could be that can uh, greatly increase, right? What you'd be saying versus if someone has a dial-up connection, that's not the person you're going to worry about as much. You know, I mean, it still can be effective though if the numbers are large, right? But just thinking along those lines. I think the problem that arises is that, and some may, some people may not see this as a problem. Um, I guess 
going back to my jaded cybersecurity mind, um, why does everything have to talk to the internet? You know what I mean? Um, Convenience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool when you can get a text from your dryer or an email saying like, hey, load's done. But like, I don't know. I think I think what would be really cool to hit the industry to help maybe with some of this is one if they were able to standardize those communications and maybe if someone were to come out with not necessarily the smart device but the secure hub that smart devices can connect to so you know that all those conversations don't have to necessarily go out all the time they can go to a secure location that you just invested in and then from its exposure to the internet there's more secure practices that can you know um work that way or communicate what needs to be communicated. The problem there is you got to get all these different people to work together to make that a possibility. And also how do you configure the device so that it, instead of sending things home, it sends to this device locally, unless you, you know, do some savvy stuff to redirect that, which the average user isn't going to do, but yeah, but that would be cool to see, right? Um, just a, a secure, smart thing, this device that secures your smart things. It's just, it's also interesting that, we're trying, well, and we're trying to educate corporate users uh, and organizations and companies about cybersecurity um, and about, hey, you know, make sure ports are secured, make sure you're using protocols and such and such. Um, I, I kind of hope, and maybe some places do um, help out with this, but if you are going to buy smart devices, and if there's any listeners out here that know of this resource already, um, that'd be great. But like a way to educate your everyday people, not just about looking at phishing emails or plugging USBs into computers, but like how you can do your best with these smart devices and how you can configure them to actually, like you mentioned, communicate securely. Well, my best recommendation that's a simple one that people should at least consider is a lot of the new wireless networking equipment that you would get for your home can enable you to enable a guest network um, as an additional network. And they always, you know, they talk about like, oh, you know, if you have people come over and you don't want to share your password to your, like your main network, you can give them on the guest and they can still have internet access. That's where I would put all my smart devices. I would enable the guest network. And when I configure them, I'd have them talk to the guest network, which is nice because your device doesn't have to be on the guest network to talk to them because you have internet access. Now, granted, um, I, I'm assuming you can get to it locally if you've lost the internet, but I don't know if some of the devices, depending on what they are, are smart enough for that. You might always need internet access to communicate with them, which, you know, but either way, it still works. And it also segments of anything were to happen on your network, it's not going to affect you, you know, necessarily on your main network. Oh, it, you know, it's a lot harder to do, but, um, but you still, you know, if your device get compromised, you can still participate, right? Doesn't protect you from being part of a botnet or being affected that way. Um, but that's just not only secure advice. That's an easy thing to do that, you know, people should at least take, make that effort. Yeah. Hopefully it happens. It, it seems like two conflicting things, right? Here, put this device out, connect to the internet all over the place no matter what, but also the security mindset at work and so on. Like it, does, like, it doesn't matter that, like, you don't have to take a security approach or a security mindset at home when you have these things going on. Yeah. I mean, I remember even the, like, devices that had to exist and were, like, uh, scales for, you know, doing shipments and postal stuff that we found on the network, and it was like... Like, what is this? And it's like, there was a business need, but it wasn't a device that was being like well-managed or maintained, right? Because people were thinking, well, yeah, it's just going to weigh things and then it's going to send the data so that I can get the right postage back and then we can pay, you know, it's all that makes that process easier. And it's like, well, at that point I was like, that's fine, but I don't want that sitting on the same network that can touch servers and things in the business. So, you know, that's where segmentation, I think it's just really important. Yeah. What do you got? 
So next up is a Intel report as we move on from our insecurities, but I'm tis. Um, a report by Mandiant. I've been waiting to use that one. Um, they they found uh, or they witnessed a adversarial group uh, that they named UNC four nine nine zero, and they gained uh, this adversary gained initial access through infected USBs, which is concerning. Um, but we'll get there. Uh, now it didn't have uh, an executable like auto run, which is kind of a good sign, I guess. Maybe that would that um, maybe they realized or maybe they were counting on that capability being disabled. So if it was um, good on that organization for identifying that. Um, but what happened was they would have a uh, image or uh, LNK file that was on the USB itself. And what they would do is um, they would make it look like a drive. Like the image itself would look like a drive and they would name it something like uh, the examples they had in the report were Kingston and or the drive that it, that it is like D, the size of it, and then dot LNK. Now, nor like I think Windows by default, um, or I'm pretty sure that Windows by default does not show the file extension. So if all you see is a picture of a drive, a name, and a size, you can say, well, what's on that, and double click it. Well, once you double click it, then it ran uh, or the LNK file ran a PowerShell script which eventually ended up downloading the empty space uh, loader into the temp directory. Um, now, the empty space is a downloader that the adversary can use to execute code uh, remotely. Um, it also has some privilege escalation capabilities. Adds itself to Windows run registry keys, uh, which is great because we've already covered that. Um, so um, modifying that registry key itself um, can once again gain persistence or privilege escalation. Um, but it... It was pretty concerned. Now, there's a lot of technical uh, details in the report that uh, are there. So it's, you know, it's a good read. Um, but going back to the discussion we just had about um, cybersecurity and education and whatnot, um, and even uh, the previous article was that, are we really just focusing on phishing emails uh, not too much, or are we focusing our time and energy into creating all these tools that not, your latest, greatest tools that will detect phishing emails, inspect them, and you know, whatever the case may be, um, that we're not really giving the other initial access vectors the same time of day? Um, not because they're not, you know, because a phishing email is easy, right? You can send a phishing email from anywhere in the world. But a USB drop is more, I guess, like personal because the person like somehow... Right? right, right. Like that, the USB had to get there somehow. Whether the adversary dropped it off or not, or they paid people to do it, and you name it. Um, there could be a whole other, you know, uh, infrastructure involved. Uh, but, I mean, USBs are old form of infection and maybe you know disabling auto run may may not be like the greatest or is a good start but disabling the port itself altogether i think might be um better now granted i know that brings up a lot of problems with like um you know limiting capabilities for users um especially because we're all remote now um i know some people still go into offices and stuff but if you do have a usb port enabled maybe audit it even more or pay attention to those have like um detections or hunts built around it already versus just enabling and waiting them for something like this to happen um it just seems like such an old way to work that it's a bummer that it's still happening. Um, and, and I think the most interesting part of this article that I found was that the payloads were hosted at trusted sites. Um, they used GitHub, GitLab, uh, Vimeo, and Ars Technica sites to host the payload. And the way they did it was that they would drop the encoded command or the, the encoded payload 
in a comment of a video, or in the case of Ars Technica, uh, the URL was actually appended to the image URL. Um, mm. And that just takes me back to when Britney Spears was a C was a C2 uh, or was being used as C2 um, communication. But going above and beyond, once again, figuring out what a proxy does or looking at a proxy, understanding that it's probably going to prevent you from going to uh, or pro if properly configured, it's probably going to stop you from going to untrusted sites, um, randomly named um, domain names like that match domain generating algorithm type style, uh, and so on. But by using these trusted sites, they are almost guaranteeing access um, to that location or the payload. Now, the the trickiness about that is that yeah, you, you know, if you hard code. Um, if you hard code the URL in the malware, which I believe they did, um, then it gets a little harder because if they do, or if the victims do discover this and they block it, then you're pretty much um, like the not that the attack is over, uh, but there's a good chance that you might not get uh, access back to them again. Um, but very clever form of um, delivering the payload. Um, once again, a concerning uh, initial access vector. Uh, but what were what were your thoughts? So yeah, a couple of things I thought were really interesting um, with this. They do obviously a lot of really uh, good encoding uh, and encryption and and things they that they uh, perform, which makes it very easy to use those, that public style infrastructure because it's hard for them to pick up their you know hosting things like that. One thing I really liked, um, only because it took me back, was the one payload. If you know, if they didn't grab it from GitHub, or if they didn't grab it from Vimeo or Ars Technica, they grabbed it from GitHub. At GitHub, and it was a uh, you know source.txt, and and it was all white space that they were later able to decode where um, the spaces and the tabs. Uh, referenced either ones or zeros and the new lines were spaces and they would convert those to ASCII characters and that would help assemble everything and I, I just love it because uh, it was they thought it was an April Fool's joke in uh, 2003 because someone came out with a coding language called Whitespace. Now it's a little more advanced than what they did here. I mean you can pretty much use their way of encoding you can use any three characters and come up with the same solution um, but I thought that was still very clever, and especially, you know, if you were to look at and get your hands on the file, you'd be looking at nothing, it'd be look like it was empty, but there would obviously be size to it. Um, uh, so obviously if, if you come across something like that, you know, you might be looking at potentially white space coding, uh, which is a novel technique. Um, and the other thing too is, you know, I kind of had to take a step back and think about some things I've been thinking about, um, like trying to solve certain problems when it comes to hunting across data. And that is... Um, execution chaining. So this is a great example of how, because things are so encoded and so encrypted, they had to kind of like pull things down and then they had to have things, you know, decode things. Then once it decoded, then it had to execute something. And so there's like, you know, how the attack is broken up to multiple steps versus putting everything in one payload. And then, you know, now it's easier for endpoints to detect something. And what I mean by execution chain is looking at length. Like, if you look at when people run processes and things, once they are in Explorer and they open something, um, there usually isn't that many steps past that opening, depending on what the application is. Outlook's kind of a different exception, right? Because you can open attachments from there. But if you have a really long execution chain and you're able to see that in whatever tools you're looking at or you're able to construct it, that is kind of suspicious, right? So you either have the really long chains where that's probably an example of something pulling something down and then it's running something that's going to run something that's going to run something and then it's going to do its final thing, right? Or you have uh, the other scenario that I think is also typically a rare fingerprint is when you have like that one to many executions, um, like, you know, they're using CMD and they're now doing a bunch of discovery things. So they have to execute all these internal load bins, right? It's like a one to many execution um and i just think that's 
when we look at these, like, oh, look how advanced these attacks get because they're broken down and it's really complicated steps of the process. It's just like, yeah, they are really complicated. So complicated as such that a normal user wouldn't be performing those types of executions when they just do their day to day. Right. Um, so I think, you know, now I'm going to feel like I have to spend more time on actually developing something in regards to that. But uh, that I, I, I love when I start seeing complicated attacks and then somehow I'm able to distill it down to, well, that's actually really simple because you're just looking at really non-standard behavior, right? I'm not even focused on the technical aspects at that point. I'm just saying, yeah, does it, does it make sense that there's six processes in this chain past Explorer that, you know, a user would normally do? Like a lot of programs don't open up other programs that open up other programs typically. Like you open the program you want and then it might have some helper things, maybe, depending on what it is. So there was that. Um, obviously, the use of LNKs, I think it's interesting that, you know, LNK files are just, I mean, when it becomes a phishing now, USB, uh, they're just a problem. Um, and it's just funny because it's such a novel thing, right? It's just a shortcut link that now creates these other issues. Um, I think that was some of the main things I wanted to pull up, just browsing real quick to make sure I'm not forgetting any other points. Yeah, I think that was primarily it. Um, but those, yeah, those are the uh, uh, the points I really want to bring up about, you know, looking in execution chain, being creative there, like thinking outside the box, I think helps a lot with this and many other attacks. And then just the novelness of, or novelty of uh, the white space stuff, how they kind of performed everything. I think you hit everything else pretty well. It is pretty interesting. Uh, and we've talked at length about and the shortcuts and stuff like that as well. Um, so if you feel or if you feel like you want to hear that, you know, feel free to go back to our other episodes because it, it's tough. Um, because you'll never find an LNK file being referenced in execution. Uh, but we we talked at length about the solution for that. Uh, so feel free to go find our other episodes. And it's something to note. Um, if you do monitor LNK creations, right? That's something you can do. Like Sysmon's a great example. You can say, I want to know when LNKs are created. Great. Well, think about where most LNKs exist on the desktop, right? Or maybe your documents folder or something like that. But typically on your desktop, that's when most legitimate LNKs are made. When you have LNKs getting created in weird locations, that should already stand out as something that um, you may want to, you know, uh, you know, look at, right? Because the point of the shortcut file, you know, think about why it exists. It's so that they can put things on a desktop and you can double click them most of the time. Um, so, yeah. All right. How are you going to bring this one home? Um, so I found this interesting article. Um, it's uh, security.net, right? They published something talking about, you know, they have, they have phishing as a service that exists, right? And they mention uh, this phishing tool known as greatness. Um, and what was really interesting about this was one kind of how it works and how they were defeating MFA, because not only was it a way to fish people um, because they create different ways you log in, but it had the API connectivity like back to Microsoft and others, there's other multi-factor uh, solutions so that it would still be able to prompt you for your multi-factor token and then steal and then let, log in or, you know, leverage that against you as well through the same phishing portal that they basically create. Um, now, the other thing that was also interesting is they, they were seeing not only where you could host this, uh, this software service, um, wherever you want, but people are actually compromising other people's websites and embedding that phishing link in other people's websites. Uh, so they were suggesting that you should be looking at your own website and looking for specific things to, so that you know you're not being part of that attack, which I'll, I thought is really interesting because a lot of people, I mean, it's pretty easy to stand up domains and do whatever, but I guess, you know, you can get around like domain reputation checks if you go to a, a legitimate domain that has a good reputation and now you can use and leverage it for uh, phishing. But um, they talk about, like, what does it look like uh, to use the service, you know, because it's fishing as a service. They give you a total stats and, like, total visits, total results, total bots that you've successfully, you know, achieved through this. 
Um, they do, you know, authentication through, you know, and session cookie retrieval stuff. That's how they've managed some of the MFA man of the middle stuff. Uh, and they do mention some of the encoding, but one of the things that's interesting is, you know, I guess this, since it's called greatness, there's a configuration file that's common to look for. Uh, and like I said, they do a good job nesting into well-known web servers. So it's not like on like, it needs to like, traverse the directory and look for these things where the website exists, but they had basically an HTTPD.GRT, and I'm guessing the .GRT is the greatness, but it basically has an encoded configuration in there, and it needs to be present in order to be able to communicate back uh, to the service to, to broker things. Um, and so it just looks like a bunch of numbers with uh, commas the way it's, it's broken out. Uh, but it's a good indicator to look for something like that. And granted, I don't know from a configuration standpoint, can you change the name of that? So it's looking for something different. And, you know, maybe in the future they will. But I would just look for anything with the extension .grt because I don't know. I mean, I'm not super savvy at file extensions. It's not my expertise, but I've just never seen that extension before. Um, so kind of worth looking at. And I, it sits adjacent to also the PHP uh that's the commonly used is like the uh, the attack vector or the phishing vector there so you kind of if you see both in the same uh location that's something to kind of look for as well um and they, like i said they, they show some pretty good breakouts like um i guess in this one it was underneath the files location but they they had to like pull out the full file tree and look for where this thing could possibly exist but uh, that was just a, a really interesting thing to see. You know, a lot of people feel comfortable with two-factor, right? Um, saying that, that that would really stop a lot of phishing uh, capabilities. And I think this is just a great example that two-factor, yes, if you can use two-factor, you should be using it. Um, but you should understand what it can be susceptible to. And that is if there's a way for someone to get in the middle to basically ask for your token like you're legitimately doing because they can broker that right back and forth and then they are the ones that get the session um that could be problematic right uh so you know how to detect man in the middle attacks or how would you know that's occurring um that's something to look for you know sometimes when you look at authentication logs for the multi-factor it will be weird for instance if you're seeing um multi-factor IP addresses that are outside of your organization or, you know, ISP type things. Like you're seeing something actually owned by another organization. Um, because obviously if this sits there, I don't know where the, where the, where it's being broken from. Maybe it does go somewhere before it brokers that I'm not sure. Um, but you know, that might be something to potentially look at, uh, or think about, right. These are just more thoughts cause I can't validate some of these things that I'm suggesting. Um, but yeah, so it was just a really interesting look on how to get around multi-factor authentication, how people are using public, uh, publicly available web servers, you know, exploiting those to actually stand up their phishing infrastructure and how this phishing as a service platform called Greatness is enabling people to do this uh, much easier. What'd you think? So my first question, uh, or my first thought, I guess, was great, this is making this attack much easier. Um, I, I even think it mentioned that, where is it? Well, on, I uh, lowers the threshold for individuals to participate in and pro profit from cybercrime. Um, mm -hmm. so once again, another, another, what facet that anyone could pick up, uh, and possibly start fishing people. Now, granted, I, I understand the difference between script kiddies and actual advanced persistent threats or even cyber crime criminals. Um, you know, and I've learned this plenty of times uh, as a legitimate cyber security professional is that you can have all the tools in the world. Um, but what to do next is that experience and knowledge that you gain by actually messing around with technology. Um, so if you just think that, you know, or I'm not saying anyone that picks this tool up uh, and runs it can will now be a successful APT. Uh, but at the same time, that, that at least gives the capability of someone saying, hey, listen, I, I picked up this tool. I fished a bunch of people. Uh, I'm going to sell this access now. So, you know, is this now going to be a, an offshoot of initial access? Um, 
Oh, so that was the term. Uh, access. Brokers, right? Mm -hmm. um, is this going to add to that pool? Uh, is this something now that adversaries are going to actually bring in? Because Or legitimate adversaries, not legitimate. Um, established um, adversaries have to bring in because now it's not just, um, you know, they don't have to create custom things. Now it's a lot easier. Uh, but, but you know, at the same time, thinking about, well, does all this just make life easier for the adversary? I mean, we've had the social engineering toolkit around for a while. Um, and I guess my question is, you know, how does that, I would like to see how it relates to it. Now, granted, I've never used the social engineering toolkit, um, but I've looked at it on, Cal, you know, my Cali machine. Um on my Cali box, but it it gives you capabilities. Um, it allows you to create uh, payloads and listeners and stuff. But it's all you know through terminal or text based. Uh, I'm curious how this compares to that. Um, and really, I would love to see the um, product. What do the phishing email look like? Uh, you know, what do they normally or how can you customize them to gain persistence or a backdoor or a beacon or whatever the case may be because uh, i would love to see the behaviors associated with that um but at the same time i can't expect that it wouldn't be anything out of the ordinary where you look for outlook and i'm going to go back to your process chain um idea again where if you have outlook at the beginning of your process chain i mean that, that's a strong indication of phishing right um so yes it is a new tool it's for phishing but hopefully we have enough behaviors uh, and we've researched enough techniques that we can easily dis uh easily hunt for activity no matter what the tool is. As long as it's that phishing email, we hopefully can understand what the normal channel looks like. That well, yeah, and, and you bring up a good point, like when you talk about what is something like phishing as a service or ransomware as a service and things like that enable people to do. It's not so much um, that turning people into great attackers, but now the resources of an attacker aren't dedicated to making something work. It's more towards making it successful, right? And there's a big distinction there because um, if an adversary only has so much time and resources or they, you know, whatever, the fir their first thing is, can we get this thing to work and we'll do what we can to make it successful. Now you have more cycles to spend on how are we going to social engineer? How can we, you know, provide the right... Um, delivery so that you know the success rate is through the roof or we're able to target even harder targets potentially and you know it's kind of similar to like defensively we should be thinking the same way and that's kind of how we we think about things as a cyborg right we're trying to basically how do we make defenders more successful not necessarily how do we you know how are we just getting things done right um because they can focus more on the success of what they're doing and not so much on making sure that it works so, so, you know, I think people need to think about that when they think about services in general. Um, services should really be focused on, you know, making it so getting things done is easy so that you can then figure out how to apply things better and, and focus more on your operation. Um, so because the adversaries, like I pointed out, are basically doing the same thing. Um, so, so, you know, if you want to, yeah, I guess, match against some of that when it comes to resources and availability, uh, something to consider. So, yeah. Any other comments? No, no. Um, just hope this doesn't not turn out for the worst. <laughs> yeah. Well, um, before we get the closing remarks here, I just want to make sure that uh, everyone is aware we are having our live Out of the Woods episode. February 15th from 7 to 8.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Obviously, if you can't attend it live to you know, partake in some of the conversations, everything through our uh, Discord uh, channel, 
Um, you can always listen to it after the fact, but we usually have a lot more engagement and conversations around more generalized topics as well as some fun things that we find. Um, so we always have a good time with it. Uh, so check us out there. Um, and then, you know, that being said, I just really want to thank everyone for joining our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Podcast today. Looking forward to syncing back up next week. So with that, that closes out our top five threat hunting headlines for the week of February 5th, 2024. Good luck and happy awning, everyone. Happy awning. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.